Amen. Mm. God is good, isn't he? Hey, we're so glad you're with us today. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And what a privilege to look at you and see you with us today. Thank you for being here, worshiping with us. Uh, it is a joy to see you. Um, man, I love to worship. I just, it takes me a minute to, to get out of that zone into this zone. So just give me a second. <sighs> good to be undone. It's good to be in the presence of the Lord. Hey, I want to say a huge thank you to my very dear friend, uh, Jeff Franks, for, for teaching last week in our series. And of course, we've been talking through these different values that we see uh, present in this early church in Jerusalem. Jeff, thank you for leading us through that beautiful time of prayer. Wasn't that amazing? Just such a sweet time of being with Jesus uh, last week. No better place to be than, than uh, to lead his people to the Lord and to pray for one another. That's what we did. It was a very special day. Of course, Jeff uh, was teaching in series in this uh, series we've been going through called Church Defined, which, like I said, is just literally going through what are the values that we see in this Acts 2 church? What are the things, the, the, the specifics that we see taking place uh, in this church that made it such a beautiful representation of what the church of Jesus needs to be, should be? I mean, it's incredible. So we've been looking at the last four weeks, we've actually just been looking at one verse, Acts 2.42. And in, the, in that one verse, there's these four specifics. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Of course, that consisted of the Old Testament. It consisted of Jesus' teaching. It also consisted of the apostles' teaching, which was their way of helping people learn how to live for Christ. People coming out of a very Jewish faith and now going, oh, now the Messiah has come. How does that represent how we live now for Christ? And so as they teach, literally their teaching becomes the New Testament. It becomes the Word of God. So the people were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to fellowship with one another, not just being together, but sharing life together, sharing everything together. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, they were devoted to breaking bread, which many people, we call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion, the Eucharist. There's different names for this uh, tradition that Jesus said, continue to do and remember this story of the gospel. Remember this story of love and grace where Jesus gave his life for us, his blood, his body for us. So they continued to do that. That was something that was important. They were devoted to this ongoing uh, telling of this narrative through the communion. And then, of course, last week, Jeff led us through this beautiful time of prayer. They were people devoted to all these things. But what was the result of this devotion? Right? What happened as a result of these four things is what we get to look at today. Uh, you know, I was thinking about those four things for us and for our lives. I couldn't help but think about the fact that um, there was something that all four of those things in their devotion uh, took. And that is probably the greatest resource we have, right? Which is time. It's a limited resource, isn't it? And the older you get, the faster it seems to fly by. Um, and yet they were devoted in all four of these things to time. You can't be devoted to the apostles' teaching without giving your time to learn and be there. You can't be devoted to really sharing life with one another without going, no, this is important in my life. I'm going to be devoted to this. It's going to take time. You can't be devoted to breaking bread or praying to the Lord or for one another without going, I'm going to give my time. I'm going to be devoted with this most precious resource in time. Can I just ask this question of us this morning as we get going? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? It's going to take time. It's going to take devotion. It's going to take a decision to go, this is important to me. I'm going to be committed to this. This is not an hour and a half on a Sunday I'm talking about. This is an every hour of every day kind of an awareness that I am his and he is mine. And I'm going to give my life to know him. To be a disciple is going to take time. To have deep, meaningful relationships is going to take time. To connect with God and people is going to take time. You know, I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Show me your calendar and your bank account and I can show you who or what you worship. Think about it. Show me where you spend your time and where you spend your money and we'll be able to see what's important in your life. We need to have a devotion 
to the Lord with all of our resources, with all of our, as Jesus said, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what are you devoted to this morning? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at uh, the outcome of their devotion. What happened as a result of them being devoted to these four things? So if you have your Bible with you today, switch over to, uh, turn over to Acts 2. I want to explain, some of you have seen our little, our little sign up here that says, bring your Bible. Let me explain kind of what we're doing real quick, can I? It is so important for us to help you value this Word of God. That's really important to us, Okay. And so one of the ways we just, it's kind of an idea that we want to just shoot at you, okay, and that's this. We want to help you uh, with that. So with the desire to help you know your Bible, bring your Bible, be in your Bible, we're going to ask you to bring it to church. And listen, that may be fine if, it's, if that's your phone or your iPad or whatever, that's cool too. But instead of kind of just, you know, putting everything on the screen, we're, from now on we're going to put our main text just like it shows there and we're not going to show it. And that way you can read it out of your Bible and your text, and it'll at least connect you in some way to that word, okay? Now, I'm going to have a lot of scripture references today. And sometimes you're like, I hear people going, slow down on the scripture references. Listen, we are going to put those on screen because we, we don't want you to be confused or left behind trying to find a certain address in, in the Bible. But just in one small little way, we're trying to encourage you to, to, to know your Bible, to love your Bible, and to bring it, okay? So that's one of the things that we're going to... Uh, incorporate very soon, if not today. So if you have your Bible or your phone or whatever, look over Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is the text that we've been going through and will continue to go through for the next few weeks. So we've got it this week, but you've been fair warned. Got it? All righty. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love this text. Would you pray with me as we get into this week's lesson? Father God, we love you so much. Lord, thank you just for the beauty of this example of the church. God, thank you for all the things that we see as values that we can incorporate into our lives. And God, would you give us the courage and the wisdom and the heart, the devotion that they had, Lord, that we too would be devoted in our time, in our priorities to your word and to each other and to the Lord's Supper, to prayer, and, and let the outcomes of our lives be similar to what we see in theirs, God. That we are together, that we're overwhelmed by your presence and your goodness, and that we are unbelievably generous. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would lead us to all truth today, and I pray that I would get out of your way. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would increase and that I would decrease, God. And that you would help us to sense your presence, Lord, and give us the courage to be who you're calling us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, like I said, we've been for four weeks discussing really one verse, right? Four different values out of one verse. It's going to seem like we're like speeding up tremendously today because we're actually going to go through three whole verses. You think you can handle it? We're going to do our best to, to go in here. Are y'all with me? Everybody's like either half asleep or like, I'm not feeling you today. I don't know. Okay, good. All right. Just checking. All right. So I want to look at these three verses. I'm going to just go ahead and read them real quick, starting with verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Awe came upon everyone. I, I don't believe the Bible here is talking just about believers in the church. I think he's talking about everybody. When God would do an amazing miracle, we're going to talk about a couple of them in just a minute, it wouldn't just be in the church, it would be in the middle of the street. It would be in the middle of the temple. And so everyone was taken back like, what is going on? God's presence has broken into the real world and I'm experiencing it. And, and the way that Luke describes it is awe. Oh my gosh, right? 
So I believe this verse is not just talking uh, uh, just about what's happened at Pentecost. Right? This section of Scripture comes right after what happened at Pentecost. Remember what happened at Pentecost? The Bible said the Holy Spirit rushed in like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, I would just, you know, I, we've got this little quarantine puppy. So that means that I'm up at, like, this morning I was up at 3.30. Thank you very much. Walking the quarantine puppy. And I stopped just for a moment, and I heard the wind blowing through the trees in the, in the woods behind our house. And I just stopped, almost falling asleep. No, I just stood there, and I just thought about that verse. Can you imagine the wind rushing in like a mighty rushing wind? And then there was fire above people's heads. And they were speaking in languages that they didn't know how to speak, but they spoke anyway into the lives of people who could understand what they were saying. It was a miracle. If you had been standing there and hearing your heart language from somebody that shouldn't know it, you would be in awe. You would be taken back. And then the greatest miracle of all happens. The God of the universe draws 3,000 people to himself and they, they come to know Jesus as their savior. That's the greatest miracle in scripture. It's the greatest miracle that can happen. In fact, all of these other miracles lead to that miracle. They should, right? So this verse is not just talking about awe in the moment of Pentecost. It's, Luke is kind of writing sort of not just chronologically in this moment, but sort of all that's happening in the early church. I'm going to remind you what happened in Acts 3, the very next chapter over. Peter and John walk into the temple, and they pass a beggar that they see every single week. This is a guy they would have known maybe his whole life. They might have watched him grow up begging, couldn't walk. For whatever reason, the Lord draws them to this man this day. And you've heard the famous thing that he says, Peter says, silver and gold have I none. I don't have anything to give you. But what I do give you, I give you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And the man is healed. And everyone in that place is, you can imagine, in what? Oh, incredible. That leads to an additional 5,000 people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. You go over a couple of chapters into, into uh, chapter 5, and we begin to see this in, in, incredible, incredible miracle that is happening in chapter 5. I mean, this is one of the ones that you go, wow, that's kind of cool, right? People are bringing their sick loved ones and friends out of their homes into the street. Just by chance, the hope is that Peter's shadow would pass by and his shadow would touch them. And if his shadow touched them, they would be healed. I mean, can you wrap your brain around that? I can't. That's amazing. If your loved one was dying and they, the shadow of Peter came by and touched them and all of a sudden they're, they're healed, what would you be in? Oh, you would be overwhelmed at the goodness and grace and kindness of an amazing God whose presence is being made known and breaking in to the reality of life. In chapter 5, an angel uh, breaks Peter and John out of prison. They've been arrested because they were preaching in the temple. And he says, go back to the temple, keep preaching. <laughs> right? Okay. And so they go back to the temple, they keep preaching. Incredible miracles that people would have been in awe over. Uh, can I just say, miracles continue to happen throughout Acts. And it's the miracles that people look to with an awareness of that God is real. I mean, he's doing amazing things. And people go, oh, wow, what they're saying is true because of what I've just seen. And so thousands upon thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people come to know Christ in the early church as the church begins to blossom around the world over the next several years. And it's accompanied with miracles, signs, and wonders it's an incredible thing. When's the last time that you were in awe? Think about it. When's the last time you were undone? Do you remember? Because I think we're losing it. We're losing our sense of wonder. We're losing... A.W. Tozer says, we're losing our oh, our, our, our awe, our wonder. We're losing that. One of my good friends, B.J. Harris, he goes by a fancier name now, Harris III. Uh, he's an illusionist, and he's amazing. 
Um, he just put out a book this past week that I recommend to you. It's called The Wonder Switch. And the whole point of the book is to say we're losing our wonder. You see, as an illusionist, every single day that he's in front of people all over the world, he does illusions. And he gets to see on their face wonder. Like, how did you do that, right? Wait, wait, how did you do that? And then what he does, he says, I deceived you. And it's the exact same thing the enemy does to you every single day. He deceives you. Don't believe everything you see. He uses that deception to tell people about Jesus. But he says over the years he's beginning to see a sense of a wonder, a deficit. We're just not in awe that much anymore. Instead of wonder and mystery, uh, the, the things of God, the things that, that normally might make us weep, our heart beat fast because of the Spirit of God, often at this time of year we begin to look in the wrong place, right? October, Halloween, horror movies. It, it, to me, it's so sad when believers feel like they have a need to go get an, an adrenaline shot, uh, some kind of thing like this from something of the enemy when we, we can have it every day with the Lord, every single day. You know, when I worship, I was over here this morning, I'm so thankful for our team and for Pastor Daryl. I was, I was stopping praying for him, thanking the Lord for him. When I worship, friends, it's just real simple. I can't get over the fact that Jesus loves me. I can't get over it. I know I deserve hell. And I know apart from his grace and his kindness, that's where I would be. And so when I worship, I think about how good he is. What a good, good father that he has loved me out of hell. What a good, good father that he has loved me the way he has. And so I just worship and I try to not think about speaking this to you. I try to not think about what happened yesterday. I try to stop in that moment and clear my heart. And clear my brain and say, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of everything in my life. And I remember what you've done in me, how you've changed me and given me life. And guess what? Pretty quickly, I am in awe. Pretty quickly, I'm in the wonder. I enter the mystery and the miracle of the grace of Jesus. You know, when somebody comes to know Jesus, I want to shout. When I sense the movement of the Holy Spirit in our church, last week was, was a beautiful example. We could just sense that the Lord was present, that he, that he was moving in us, and there was just a sweetness in the service. I just, my heart starts beating, and I'm, I'm just taken aback by the goodness and grace of God. When I sense the, the Spirit of God moving in the world, in, in my children, wherever, when you share something with me that God has done, I get excited. It encourages us, and we get a, just a little taste of the awe and wonder of God. You know, I wish we saw miracles like they did in Acts. At the same level, at the same, uh, you know, I wish my shadow, I'm looking at it right there, it won't do anything for anybody, unfortunately. See, the thing is, is this is what I believe. I believe that God can do any miracle he wants. He's a miracle-working God. Anything, whatever God wants to do, he can do it. I believe that with all of my heart, I do. I don't believe miracles have ceased. God can do anything, but I do believe the gift given to people to perform miracles, I, I don't believe that that's something that continues. I don't see it. If it was, why, why does COVID exist? If it does, why are hospitals full of sick people? Let's see that gift go into the hospitals and do something. There are literally texts in, in the New Testament where it says that everyone in that town was healed. Jesus was clearing out the sick folks, right? Can you imagine? But God can do anything he wants. He can do anything that he wants. But the, here's the reality. We're not looking for miracles. We're not looking for wonder anymore. Every time a sinner comes to know Jesus by his grace, the greatest miracle there is. 
Every time an addict decides to, to not choose his drug, instead choose obedience to serve Jesus, is that a miracle? An unbelievable miracle. Every time we wake up and we feel the warmth of the sun and we remember, oh yeah, if the axis of the earth were to shift by one degree, we would freeze to death. Only God could hold us in that place. It's a miracle. Let the warmth of the sun today remind you of the miracle of God. There are miracles everywhere. When somebody forgives somebody who's wounded them, abused them, and hurt them, that is a miracle of God. When somebody changes from who he was to who God's trying to make him, it's nothing short of a miracle. Are we looking for them, right? Do we see them? Acts 2.44 says this. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So just a minute ago, it says everyone was in all. So that's, that's everybody. People on the streets, Jews, Christians, everybody was in all. But here there's a distinction. Now we're talking about believers in Jesus. Believers were together. They were together and they had all things in common. This is a, uh, this is a beautiful verse. Where before we're talking about mysteries and miracles, now we're talking about community and unity, and those aren't the same things. You can, you can have community and yet not be unified. Or you can have some sense of unity and not really live life in community with one another. Can I just tell you that in the early church, for Jews and Gentiles to come together in a unified form of any kind is a miracle of God. You think we have issues today of racism and prejudice. They had incredible issues of racism and prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated them. They hated them. And Paul calls this beautiful work of Jesus a mystery. And there's no question that it's a miracle. Look with me in the Bible, Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That's a huge statement. This is a new thing God is doing, a new thing God is showing to the, the apostles. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And all of us Gentiles say, Amen, <laughs> right? Paul says it's a mystery of Christ. The Jews had, had felt like they, they were a part of this lineage, a part of this family, a part of this promise. And now he's saying, no, the mystery of Christ is it's not just about the Jews. It's about all who would believe in Jesus. Incredible. There's a little bit more uh, explanation, actually, in the chapter previous, Ephesians 2, 14. Look at this. It says, for he... Speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Amen. As you think about that text, as you maybe go home today and you think a little bit about it, let me just tell you something. Your race, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you know Christ as your Savior, your Christ follower, your race is not the most important thing about you. Your culture is not the most important thing about you. Your family, your money, your job, your history, your future, nothing is more important about you than the fact that you are in Christ. You are his. That redefines us. It doesn't make us anymore black and white, Democrat and Republican, uh, Northerner, Southerner, all the different div divisions, male, female. It makes us in Christ. It tears down the dividing wall of hostility by Jesus. Now we're one. We're believers. We're a part of this same mysterious family that God does this incredible, mysterious work. It's a miracle. 
Do you feel connected to a group of people anywhere in your life? Anthony's over here, he's wearing his, his uh, what do you call those? What do you call those things? Uniform? Okay, I thought there was something else. But. So he, he's, I mean, you look, at, you, you look at him right now, we're proud of him. He is connected to a group of people, right? That uniform shows that he's connected to uh, the Army Reserves. It's awesome. Do you have some people that you're connected to? I, I used to love the, to watch the, the show The Office. Different people, different giftings, different crazy people. Some people are really close. Some people are not very close. But there were moments where it showed them they were all together. They were all part of that one office. Do you have that in a department in your office? I, I know that I've got some friends that feel that in their CrossFit gym. I mean, it's like they would die for those folks. Do you feel that in your city group? I hope so. Do you feel that in your church? I hope so. I was speaking to one of our people. I say one of our people. This is one of our tribes. This is one of our partners recently. We hadn't seen her in a while because of COVID and some other issues. And, and I was just looking at her on Zoom, and we were talking, and I, I thought, you're one of us. I mean, just, just this heart of love and connectedness that I just miss this person because we're identified together as family, as one my, uh, my oldest, oldest daughter, Daisy, she's been playing volleyball this year. We're real proud of how she's done. But one of the things that's been cool, kind of reminded me of when I was growing up, is on game days, they wanted her to wear a jersey, right? So that she would be identified with the rest of the team. So when she's walking around class, they say, oh, that's a, that's a volleyball player, that's a volleyball player. I, I remember the same thing from junior high school and high school. We had to wear our, our jerseys. There was, there was a connectedness that we're on the same team. See, the, the, the Bible-believing New Testament church ought to be a family. It ought to be the body of Christ. It ought to be his church. No, we're not all alike. Yes, praise God, we're diverse. Thank God we have different backgrounds and cultures and preferences, but we're one. Those differences make us better. They make us stronger. They shouldn't divide us. They should bring us together. We don't vote the same. We don't live in the same area necessarily. We don't all look alike, praise God, but we're one. Paul said that to the Galatians, Galatians 3, 28, he said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you realize what a revolutionary statement that was in the early church? When the big issue was circumcision and Jews and Gentiles, and Paul says, you're the same, you're one. You're no longer Jew and Greek and male and female, slave or free. We're all one. We're all equal. But unity doesn't mean uniformity. Just because we're all together and we're, we're, we're in agreement and we love one another, it doesn't mean we all have to be alike, right? We're different for, for a reason. I'm good at maybe a couple of things and I'm bad at a lot of things. You may be good at the things that I'm not good at. And we complement each other in this beautiful, beautiful way in different giftings and personalities. Paul, I love this text. <clears throat> he, he speaks this to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to jump around here. But look at what Paul's trying to show the Corinthian church about these different giftings, these different personalities, and yet being connected as one. Chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Jump down to verse 24b. He says, but God who so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Look at this summation here, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. In other words, you are collective and individually members of it. You see that? Paul's doing his best to help the church at Corinth understand the beauty of diversity. He's helping the church understand that the body needs hands and feet and eyes and ears. 
We need every different part to do different things so that we can be complete as the church of Jesus. Yes, we're individuals. Yes, we have different preferences and gifts and cultures, but we bring them together to be one. The text we're looking at in verse 44 says, all who believed were together. There's a sense of unity. They needed each other. The body, the body needs all the different parts. I love the quote from Augustine that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I love that. There are things we need to be unified on. There are truths of the word of God that in our culture are being broken down, divided, not valued at all. So as a church, we need to have a certain set of values. We say, we agree on these things, right? We, we, are, we are unified in these essentials. And then there's uh, some things that are sort of gray areas. They don't, they don't matter as much. Then, well, you know what, there's freedom, there's liberty. But in all of it, there's always love. I think the uh, more modern way of saying this is let's major on the major and minor on the minors. But let's love one another. And it's so important that we protect this unity we have with each other, right? It's so important. It's been one of the sweetest things in 30 years of ministry that I've experienced in our elder team is we've always had unanimous movement and decisions completely. It's been absolutely beautiful. But we have to protect that. And how do we do that? Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, uh, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm going to say things that are wrong messed up or I shouldn't, didn't have the right attitude, I'm going to make mistakes and fail you. Will you forgive me? Please? If I've hurt you, will you give me the opportunity to apologize? If we disagree, can we have a conversation and grow deeper in our relationship as a result of that conversation? Please, let's protect our unity with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, ready to maintain this unity in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are one. So this text we're looking at, verse 44, and all who believed, believers in Jesus, they were together. They were unified. In fact, it's something that's expected of the body of Christ. Even Jesus prayed for this unity. He prayed it three times in chapter uh, 17 of John. Lord, unify these believers. May they be one as we are one. Please, God, give them unity. It's my heart that we would be eager to maintain that unity. So I want to move on now. I want to look at the second half of this verse because this is where things start getting a little tripped up on, right? Maybe you've seen people try and use this verse and, and others to try and say, you know, the early church was really kind of a socialist or communist community. That's, that's the way they were. Well, they would be wrong in that estimation, and I want to show you why. Uh, the verse says this. It says they were all, uh, believers were all together and they had all things in common. They had all things in common. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about one of those values was fellowship, koinonia in the Greek. It means to share, to share time, share life, share resources. That description is, is kind of moved over to this spot in that they, were, they had all things in common. They were a sharing, giving, loving people. But I want to talk to you about the things that they had in common. The first thing they had in common was, look at the verse. And these believers, right? These believers were together and they had all things in common. A believer knows this. Romans 3 says that we all are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
No one seeks God. None are righteous, right? None of us. And so to be a believer in Jesus, you know that. I I don't deserve God. I don't deserve his grace. It's only by Jesus and his mercy that he saved me, right? To be a believer, you have to know that. I didn't earn this. I didn't do this. This is God's grace over my life that he has given me. I, I can't boast about it, Ephesians says. It's a gift of God. So the first thing they had in common is a common faith that they were all desperate for Jesus. And can I tell you what happens when you really get that in your heart and soul? That Jesus has saved you by his grace. When you really understand that, I want you to know when you see people, you realize they are created in his image. It doesn't matter how different they are than you. You look at people and you go, That's, that person has been created in God's image and they are in need of Jesus just as I am. And we level the playing field. We're all in need of this same grace. So as believers, they had that in common. Second thing they had in common was this. They knew that nothing they had was theirs. It was God's. Look over in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We're going to look at this for a second. Acts 4, 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Second thing they had in common was the fact that they understood they're just stewards of the things of God. Did you know that everything you have, everything on your back and everything in your pockets, it's not yours. It's God's. Some of you go, wait a minute, hold up. I worked three jobs. I earned this degree. I earned this title. I've worked hard. I built this house. Did you? Did you give yourself the health to do that? Did you give yourself the wisdom and the brains to, to earn that degree or the health to, to go to class? Or God has given you everything you have. And so we are stewards of those things. It's all his. How do we steward the things of God? That's the question. And they knew this. That was the second thing that they had in common is that none of our stuff is our stuff. It's all God's. And so when you think of life that way, it's easy to be generous. It's not mine. I was real proud of um, my youngest, Jovi. We were, um, we were driving here on Wednesday night, and uh, there was a man on the side of the road who was, had a sign, and, and I'll be honest, you know, I, we don't always give to every person we see. We can't do that. But um, he had a sign, and I was kind of doing, the, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not going to connect eyes kind of a thing. And in the back seat, I hear the rustling of dollar bills. First of all, I didn't even know she had dollar bills. <laughs> Loan me some money back there, Jovi. So she's going through her purse, and I'm like, in my heart, my heart starts beating fast. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And sure enough, she grabs a few dollar bills, and she says, Daddy, Daddy, roll down the window. She wasn't even asking my permission, right? Roll down the window. I'm going to give some money. And we gave some money to this man, and a little bit later, we had a daddy-daughter date dinner, and we prayed for a while for that man. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful way to teach our kids that's not yours. That's God's. So how do we represent the Lord by the way we spend money and the way we live? These people got that. That was one of the things they had in common. But the big mistake is they think that some of these verses are proof texts for communism. I want to read them real quick. Acts 2, 44 and 45 is the end of our section that we're going to look at today. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then we go back to Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now there was a needy person, there was not a needy person among them. Isn't that amazing? There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, when you look at those two verses, and they have been used poorly for centuries, (laughs) For ill gain, right? I mean, these folks gave their, they sold their house, bring it to the church. No. 
See, the idea in communism is that we're going to all sell our houses and we're going to redistribute the wealth among everybody equally. First of all, that never happens in communism. I mean, the part that you give everything you have does, but the equally part never does. And we see that that is not what happens in the early church. They're not forced to give. Every bit of this giving, we see a lot of it in these two sections of Scripture, it's all voluntary. It's all out of God's movement in their hearts. They choose to give. Uh, One of the commentarians that I like to, to study from in the book of Acts is Daniel Aiken. He says, the Bible doesn't teach communism, but it does teach radical generosity. The church gives freely, voluntarily, sacrificially, and generously to the work of God's kingdom because Jesus changed their hearts and they want to invest in what he's doing in the world. The church knew their savior, gave them the pattern and the power for generosity. Look at this. The best and most sustainable model for generous giving is a deep understanding and appreciation of grace. I know God has changed my heart and it's not mine. This is not my stuff. And so because of all that God has given me, I want to give back. We know that it wasn't a, a communistic sort of society because it says uh, this in Acts 2, 46. This is the verse we're going to look at next week in depth. But i got to show you this. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their what? Homes. Hmm. So everybody wasn't selling their home. If you read the book of Acts, you see continually over and over and over again, the church meets where? In people's homes. And not just some, any people's, they meet in wealthy homes. Lydia had a courtyard, had servants. Where Eutychus fell out of the window was a third story home. That's a big house. Not many people have a three stories, right? These are wealthy people. How could they be breaking bread in their homes if they were all supposed to sell their homes? They weren't. It was voluntary action. Even the death of uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, right? That's That's a kind of a scary thing to study and look at. What happened? They sold a home. Nothing wrong with that. But then they, what they did is they told the church, here's all the money that we made from the home. And they pocketed some of the money they made from the home. They lied about it. They were inauthentic. They were trying to be something they weren't. Look at these believers that have given everything from their home. That's not who they were. They lied about it. They could have said, hey, here's half of our home proceeds. We're going to live off the other half. Praise God. There was no prerequisite to giving all. That was a voluntary thing that they could have done. See, God doesn't care if we have money. He doesn't care if we make money, but he does care about how we use it, the fact that we are stewards of it and not to be deceptive about it, to be authentic. Paul even tells the church in Corinth, this is an interesting verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 13, as he shares about being generous, right, and yet not burdening one another. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul's saying when we live a generous life, God will continue to give us more. There will be no lack when we live generously that way. So we see these believers in this early church, they do three things. They enter the mystery and the miracles of God. His presence breaks into reality, right? And they're in awe. It's amazing. And we see them in this community, and it is a unified and beautiful community of one, even though there are a lot of differences and varieties and uh, diversity. And then thirdly, we see this community as one that is sacrificial and generous. Here's the thing you need to know as a church. God doesn't require all of us to give the same thing. He doesn't. He didn't require us all to give the same amount, but he does want us to understand that it is all his, and all of us need to be reminded of that, that we steward his money in a way that honors him. This community understood. They were believers together. That means that they knew that they all needed Jesus. That means that they knew that They all represented his money. It was his anyway. And yet they sacrificially gave. 
make a couple of last points before we go here. Why in the world did they give so sacrificially? Why don't we? I think this is one of the, the reasons why. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, when you get this understanding of what your salvation is, that, that Jesus came in the wealth of his righteousness from heaven and became poor for your sake, for my sake. That on the cross, he gives us the wealth of his righteousness. We had none. We can't earn any. We don't deserve any. And yet, God gives it all to us through Jesus. And when we understand that, we want to be a giving people. Paul even uh, kind of sections it out and says we ought to be a giving people to everybody, but especially those in the church. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Christians for centuries have been known as people who know how to give. They love through their giving and their service. But Paul says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, let's do good to everyone. Let's give, let's be generous. But when it comes to our family, we gotta kick it up a notch. We gotta love really, really well in our family. You know, the thing I think that was happening in this church, yes, they were in awe. Yes, they were a community and unified together. But one of the things that I think that was so interesting about this church is they just were incredibly sensitive to the needs of people around them. You see that? So sensitive. Uh, you hear us talking about what the church ought to be. It ought to be a place where we walk life together where we have real relationships with one another. We don't just walk in a building like this and go, hi, I don't really know you, hi. Coffee, cool, all right. We never, you know, we never go deep in relationship. God is calling us to real relationship. Real life upon life. And when we do that, we're gonna know needs. And guess what? Bring your needs. Because some of you may be broke financially, and the couple sitting next to you may be broke in their marriage, may have not any problem with finances, but they may be broke in their marriage. And it could be that you could encourage them in their marriage. It could be that we're broken through addiction or other issues in our thoughts. I don't know, but together in these different gifts and these different beautiful relationships that God wants us to have as one, God wants to heal us. He wants to love us. He wants us to experience what it can truly be. So this is what I say about the church. Come and be known. Come and really know one another. Be loved, be changed, be challenged, be supported, be rescued by the love of Jesus through his body, his church. Amen? That's who we have to be. And we can't just say amen like I agree with it and then I'm not going to live it. No, we got to walk it out. We have to make that priority of time something that's real for us. God, I'm going to give my time to learn. I'm going to give my time to relationships. I'm going to give my time to prayer. I'm going to give my time to being a part of a connected body of believers who truly love one another and we serve one another. We help one another. These believers were in awe of God's presence. They saw his miracles. And those miracles gave them faith to believe. And it was in that awe, it was in that faith that they said, Everything I have, God, is yours. Make me a steward of your stuff. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. They were a unified community of believers. One church committed to one faith and one Lord. Friends, as I close, listen, my prayer is that we truly have a sense of awe in our lives and our church that we recognize that God is doing something. We recognize it when he does. You know, life is hard. We got COVID, we got the election, we got all kinds of craziness with our own lives and our own fears and our own finances and our own relationships, and it just cloudies life, doesn't it? That's why we have to, you, you remember the movie, uh, 
is it, I don't remember what it was, but the pitcher said, clear the mechanism. Guys who, what movie was that on? Bull Durham, maybe? Thank you. I knew some guy would have that. Clear the mechanism. This pitcher would say that to himself in his mind. Clear the mechanism so that he could throw a strike. I guess that's softball he's throwing. Clear the mechanism. Listen, that's what we have to do. God, clear my heart. Every day, clear my mind of the things that are temporal and give me a view of the things that are eternal so that I can be who you want me to be. So I can love people the way you want me to love you. Be in awe, be in community, and be so sacrificially generous, Lord, that you show me that it's not mine, it's yours. And when you do that through us as a church, we won't believe what God's going to do. Is that time a priority in your life? When's the last time you were in awe of something that God has done? And are you missing some aspect of community that maybe you just need to lay down and say, God, help me make some time for relationships that are real. It's my prayer that we recognize what he's doing, that we be connected, unified, protecting that unity and being so sensitive to people in need. That's my prayer for us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, we love you and we, we acknowledge God, that we don't get this right. I think in many ways we don't get this right because we're not committed to these first four values. We don't take the time to, to learn and be devoted to your word or truly share life with other people or value communion and prayer. And as a result, Lord, it's hard for us to see how this could be who we could be. But Lord, because we believe in you, because of this faith that we have, Lord Jesus, in your gospel, in your goodness, in your kindness. Because we have that common faith, God, we, we're all equal. We're all one, baptized into one spirit, one body, one Lord, one faith. So God, give us unity in our church and make us sensitive to people who have needs, not just financial needs, needs of the heart, needs of the soul, needs of relationship, needs of connectedness, needs of finances, whatever the need may be, Lord Jesus, make us a sensitive people that are willing to be sacrificial even because it's all yours. It's all yours, Lord. God, even today as we worship through our offering, as we give, whether it be online or in the back in a offering plate, it's all yours. Teach us to be the steward you want us to be, Lord, of all that is yours. And make us the people you want us to be committed, devoted, prioritizing our time so that we can be who you call us to be. And we can see the same outcomes, God, hopefully in our lives that they saw in theirs. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.